I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and this is where I share my stories. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time, lingering coughs be damned. It's the annual November story a couple weeks later than planned because my wife and I were sick over the Thanksgiving break in the U.S. But we're well again, at least well enough to record this story that is fiction, even though it sounds real. It's unlike anything I've ever done for the show, and I hope you enjoy this tale about an entrepreneurial podcast gone rather wrong. Check out the show notes for the episode's content advisory. Alright, let's get to work. The Lumberjack of Williamsburg Hi, I'm Brooke Ainsley, host of the Creative Ascent podcast where I talk with cutting-edge, innovative creatives about their treks to success so you can walk a shorter trail to all your creative dreams. This week, my guest is L.J. Burke, a creative innovator known to many as the Lumberjack of Williamsburg. Before we get started, apologies about my voice. I've been a bit under the weather lately. I understand, Brooke. It hit me, too. I'll do my best not to cough or snarf through this. (laughs) I know, I know. All right, let's get the obvious questions out of the way. Why the Lumberjack of Williamsburg? And does the LJ in your name stand for Lumberjack? I get those questions a lot, Brooke, and I wish it stood for something cooler, but it's my given name, Larry Jane, and that's Y-N-E. As far as the Lumberjack moniker, it was given to me by another podcaster, the three-step dick himself, Richard Costas. Everyone in Williamsburg was into that ironic hipster look at the time, you know the one with the skinny jeans, the PBR t-shirts, trucker caps, and mutton chops. I wanted to stand out from the crowd, so I trimmed my beard and started wearing flannels and hiking boots. It became my calling card, and when I was on the Three-Step Dick podcast, refining my roadmap to success down to just three things, Costas titled the episode, The Lumberjack of Williamsburg. And that name stuck with me. Cool. You've become known for your bespoke outdoor gear. Waxed canvas bags, restored axes, painted canoe paddles, and more. Were you into the outdoors when you were younger? Not really. I grew up in Brooklyn Heights and moved to the Berg right after its big boom. My dad managed hedge funds and my mom's a lawyer. After design school, I didn't want to just become another guy making logos and managing ad campaigns for conglomerates. When I saw Field Notes take off for Aaron Draplin, 
I knew there was a market for busy professionals wanting to feel that old school, outdoor John Muir aesthetic. I started with wax canvas messenger bags and it took off from there. One of my customers bought a lake house up in Wakabuck and he asked if I could create some things to make his getaway feel more authentic. And that's how I got into painted canoe paddles, axes, and old rustic signage. I love hand lettering and weathering things to look like they've always existed. You mentioned design school. How did you get into design? Oddly enough, through the J. Peterman catalog. My parents always got it, and I loved how it was full of paintings instead of photos. Just how every item came with a story. It was so different from any other marketing I saw at the time. You'd look at the Sears catalog as a kid, and there's someone your age with a bull haircut and wet lips playing with a Tonka truck in an oversaturated, high-contrast photo that looked like it was photographed by circus clowns. And that was all accompanied with boring copy. But the Peterman catalog made you yearn for a different way of life. You wanted to travel the world in those clothes, carrying all the right accessories with you. It spurred imagination. It's the butt of so many jokes now, but I can still pick up a Peterman catalog and feel like a little kid imagining all the many ways to take on a big world out there. That's beautiful. Your story and that way of marketing. When you can shape the consumer and make them crave becoming something they never even knew they wanted to be, it's a win. Like inspiring them to be better than they were before interacting with your brand. But anyway, you just passed the 250,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. How did you leverage what you do with that? Well, I've always loved photography and video. I was lucky that my parents recognized and supported the things that I loved. I used to make little photo comic books, and then I started editing video stories. And not just funny things made with friends, because if I'm being honest, I really didn't have a lot of friends. I kind of lived inside my head, and maybe because I was trying to appease adults, I knew I couldn't just make a video about fighting a monster or something and be told I did something special. Jump forward, and I saw a mini-documentary on YouTube about Cut Brooklyn's Joel Buckowitz. There's a guy who started out as a novelist, and he didn't make it, so he started grinding steel to ease his nerves. He ended up making incredible knives and his business took off with just a couple video features on YouTube, shot like they were made for TV and not just some little throwaway thing. So I dragged out my cameras and made a four-minute documentary about what I do and I uploaded it to YouTube. And then I contacted everybody I knew to share it and it got passed on down the line to the right people who shared it on Twitter. It went from something like 25 views to a couple thousand overnight, and then by the end of the week it was almost at 10,000 views. So I vowed to make a video a week, sometimes telling my story and other times featuring a product I was making. Just sharing how I did what I do. I know a lot of people think you should hold all your cards close to your body, but I find that sharing how I do all I do shows people that what I make is not just something made on an assembly line. They know it's me in my shop making a thing by hand especially for them. I mean, sure, they could try making it themselves, but when they see all that goes into everything I create, they'd rather just pay me money. Great point. 
How else do you promote your brand? Do you work with any influencers? Beyond YouTube, it's mostly just word of mouth. I really don't do a lot with influencers. I don't need to pay somebody to hold my product on Instagram or make a video we all know that they're making simply because they've been paid. I go where the money is. My parents taught me that. Some of the people I sell product to can afford to pay even more than I charge, and I definitely charge what I'm worth. My customers, I suppose, are my influencers. Have you thought about offering lower-priced items to attract customers on the way up? That's a common move for many, but I think it cheapens the brand. I want people to aspire to my products, not work their way up. You can either afford what I offer, or you can't, and that's part of its appeal. But I'd be lying if I said it didn't at least cross my mind early on. Things like beard oils, hand-carved pipes, things like that. It was more important to stay true to my vision, though. Okay, so you're not into influencers. But if you could have any celebrity endorse your product, who would it be and why? Man, that's a great question. I never really thought about that. I sell to some celebrities and they talk about what I do with their friends. But if I had to seek someone out, I suppose Nick Offerman? I usually don't go humorous with what I do, but he has that right blend of rugged and serious. But he's also seen as trustworthy and down-to-earth. That fireside video with Lagavulin that he made is a good example. You know, it's not necessarily funny, it's just him sitting beside a fireplace and drinking product. It's whimsical at best. So maybe something like that, just him taking a tree down with one of my axes... Paddling his canoe with something I made, maybe? Or just like out hiking and taking some gear out of a bag I created? <laughs> yeah, he'd be perfect for your brand. All right, let's take things back a bit. What's the first thing you remember selling? Mystery boxes. What are those? It started with me just taking things like old toys, putting them in boxes, and selling them to my friends. You might get an old Star Wars figure or a redemption coupon for a toy truck or something that was too big for a box. I'd sell them in batches to kids in the neighborhood, and they went nuts for it. I'd look at all the old things I wanted to get rid of, and then I'd figure out a price for it all, and then I quadrupled that. So, say, everything was worth about $20. I'd shoot for 80 bucks, maybe even 100 and say it was 10 things I was getting rid of, I'd be selling 10 boxes at $8 a piece, or maybe even 10. Kids in the neighborhood practically fought to be part of it. I mean, obviously some things were worth far less than $8, but as long as I made sure that there was at least one or two decent things in the bunch, it's like it created a gambler's reflex. And because I only sold 10 boxes, eventually I had crowds of kids wanting in. It got so big that I started selling $1 lottery tickets to be one of the kids who had the right to buy an actual box. Before long, I started making more money just from selling those tickets. Did any other kids eventually catch on and then try doing the same thing? Oh, yeah. What did you do then? I got better boxes, better things in those boxes, so my reputation was always the one people paid for. 
and then I charged more. Then one year I made enough to start selling to adults. I'd buy boxes from antique stores and other things and do the same thing just on a bigger scale. I had an uncle who owned a bookshop and he let me set up my little shop there. That's when I realized how much money adults had and how much they wanted to A. help an enterprising kid and B. feel the magic of buying something they couldn't see. People will pay a lot for a surprise. Going back to Jay Peterman, I think that's why it works so much. You never saw the actual product until it arrived. You saw a painted representation, but it wasn't until you opened the box that that last dopamine hit dropped and you felt like you were part of some elite club. Wow, this is golden. Any plans to bring back the mystery boxes? Maybe a subscription service? That's a really good idea, but then I'd have to hassle with employees. Okay, let's talk about that. You do all of this yourself, correct? Yes. And that drives demand? Yeah, it does. I can only do so much and there's a waiting time. I have to turn a lot of requests away. If you've purchased product from me before, I'm more likely to take that commission than something new. That's the thing. So many people spend time chasing influencers and investing time and money in getting more new customers. But you can make a decent living from existing clients without that big investment of chasing down more people. So, no plans to expand into a bigger operation? No, I think that would just ruin a good thing for everyone involved. How so? Well, I could probably make more money mass-producing my work, but at that point, I'm just like everybody else. If anyone can buy what I'm selling, then really, what's its worth? I don't say this to sound arrogant, but my customers see me as an artist, and they have a surplus of funds. So that small base I allow to purchase my creations are part of an exclusive group. And I guess in that sense, it's kind of like offering the right to only 10 kids out of eventually hundreds who wanted to buy one of my old mystery boxes. The thing with that was everybody knew the agreed-upon worth of what was inside the boxes. If I tried selling the right to purchase for $50 or $100, no one would have bought in because they knew that the whole haul was probably worth $80 or $100. But now I can offer something I spend a week making and I end up making thousands in return. All right, let's just go there. How much do you make in a year? That is, if you're comfortable discussing numbers. Sure, I can do that. Um... I have a small shop space I own free and clear, and then I shoot for about a quarter mil a year. I know I could make more, but I'm not my mother or father who wanted as much as they could make. And I'll be honest, so I don't sound too much like an asshole. I'm, I'm sorry, can I say that on the show? You just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I, guess I did. But, but Yeah, uh, that's fine. Occasional swearing is honesty, right? I fucking think so. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, just to be out in the open about things. My parents made sure I'd never want for anything other than what made me happy in life. They were both very type A's. I guess I have a little bit of that in my blood, but not like them. I just need enough. And I seriously love what I make. I love hearing from my customers and... Example... Last summer, someone I sell to was hiking in Colorado and a storm came up. 
Everything he needed to keep dry stayed dry. I got a postcard from him while he was still on vacation sharing the story. I have a file cabinet over there full of letters and postcards and things like that. It might sound funny, but if this place ever went up in flames, that particular cabinet is what I'd rush in to save. That's so sweet. It really is about the relationships we build through commerce. Oh, it is. All right. What do you do when you're not working? On some level, I suppose I'm always working, at least always thinking about new things and ways to make existing product better. But it's not like some of my friends who tease me about being a hipster. People can make fun of what I do all day, but I'm not the one answering email from my boss at three in the morning when I wake up in the middle of the night and see my phone lit up from people working from their beds. When I'm not working and I let my mind go, I enjoy reading. What do you read? Novels. Really? Yeah, I know as an entrepreneur, people expect me to read business books, but almost everyone I've read is like, 10 to 20 pages of actual decent information expanded to hundreds of pages just so people feel like they got their money's worth and accomplished something. There's no challenge in those kinds of books. I can hone in on all I want to learn with a Google search and not waste a 15 to 1 ratio of wading through a bunch of bloat. Fiction just does something to my brain. I not only get a feel for how to tell better stories, but I learn what different people deal with when I read books written by people I might never meet. Business books seem to break everyone down into just a few things or types because easy sells. Most entrepreneurs I meet know nothing outside their little bubbles because they see everyone as an archetype instead of an actual human being. If you're marketing anything and not reading fiction, you're probably mediocre at best and very limited in thought and understanding. I see. What habits or mindsets make you successful? Well, reading novels, but part of what I love about novels is the time it takes to read one. I'm not sitting there listening to audiobooks at two times speed just to get them into my head. And along those lines, I'm putting time and deeper uninterrupted thought into what I create. I give ideas and processes time to incubate. And I don't mean for a day or a week, some things I think about for years. Most of those may go nowhere if I measured it, but I find that in giving things so much time, other things bubble up along the way that I'd never come up with otherwise. I mean, I get where Seth Godin is getting at when he talks about always shipping things, but a machine gun approach is desperate, don't you think? I mean, anyone can do it. Maybe you hit a thing or two once in a while, but I'd rather take the time, dial in my sights, and not miss a shot. So you're saying you never make mistakes? I didn't say that. I said I never miss when it's time to pull the trigger on an idea. You'll have to forgive me if I don't believe you. Yeah, you're excused, but it's the truth. So many people just throw so much stuff out there hoping that something sticks. I'm not the kind of guy who thinks about monetizing everything. I mean, shit, people can't even have a hobby anymore without everyone asking how they're going to make money with it. I find that sad. A friend suggested I turn my love of reading into a side hustle, and man, I hate that term. I'd rather make my one thing matter so I don't have to do other things on the side. I work and then I enjoy my time not working. 
but to this friend, I have this big YouTube following. So he's like, dude, you need to figure out how to monetize reading. No, I don't need to figure out how to monetize reading because I enjoy reading and some of the other things I do simply for the sake of enjoyment. I don't think people enjoy things anymore because unless you're hitting your numbers, even hobbies have become stressful things for people now. Again, I know that I'm speaking from a place of privilege and never wanting for anything growing up, but I do know what enough looks like. My dad stopped what he did because it made him sick. You can't catch infinity, so find enough and enjoy what comes with it. I can't tell you the last time I stressed about something or didn't have a good night's sleep. That's worth far more to me than some five-year plan that quadruples my income. I mean, I appreciate what you do, but I bet you and your audience would be happier if you weren't always chasing things. Well, this is taking a bit of a turn. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Okay, can, uh, can I ask you and your audience something then? Sure. What does enough look like to you? I'm not sure. I guess I never thought about it like that. Well, Brooke, you have over one and a half million followers on YouTube and you post three times a week, getting almost a million views each video. Between your ad revenue, money as an influencer, and your products, I'm sure you make considerably more than I do. Yes, about three to four times more each year from the numbers you discussed. Well, when does it ever become enough, Brooke? Never, I suppose. If I slow down, it all goes away. Well, I think you have more than enough. I think you need to stop chasing so much. You'd be a lot happier. Are you okay? No, I'm really not. I have you on the show to have a nice conversation about what we do, and you pull some almost abusive mentor shit on me. Psychoanalyze me and tell me I'm not happy? This show is a mutually beneficial thing for both sides, and I really do hope it helps listeners figure out something they'd rather do. So don't you dare tell me what enough is, because between your parents, you grew up a billionaire who never wanted for anything. You can make nothing at all the rest of your life, and you're good. I don't expect people to know my story, but let me put things in perspective, Larry. My dad was a heavy equipment mechanic, and my mom worked at a convenience store until I made enough that she didn't have to work. You grew up here in the city. I grew up in Flat Lick, Kentucky, and no, that's not a nickname. That's the name of the actual town. I'm sorry. I'm not done. I have four siblings, and there were times at dinner when we were lucky to have pork chops purchased the day of expiration. That and boiled potatoes and a can of green beans was often it. Not even a big can of beans, just a regular, what, 14-ounce can or whatever it is? So imagine this. You fucking love green beans, but there are five other people going at it. And if you wonder why I didn't say six and include my mom... That's because I later found out she used to eat saltine crackers and butter while cooking dinner for us so she could get some fat and carbs and leave something for her family. You mentioned your dad retired from trading. How is he today? He's fine. Yeah, well, my dad's been dead for years. Mesothelioma from brake pads and clutches and shit. So imagine how much all that fucks you up. I could be as rich as your family and still worry that one day I would wake up and it would all be gone. Even though I know better. 
But that's the wicked thing about growing up in poverty. You really can't escape it, even when you're rich. I have to try 10 times harder than people who grew up with money, and I'm still worried it will all fall out from under me and I'll end up back in the gap with nothing again. Like, that's my destiny. I, I'm sorry, Brooke. I had no idea. I didn't expect you to, but you know, don't pull some abusive self-help guru shit on me about what enough looks like, okay? I think we're done. I'm sorry. I really am. Um, can I say one more thing? Sure. Why not? This is a mess of an episode as it is. I have a confession. What's that? I don't make even a fraction of what I said I make. I wasn't kidding about the postcard from Colorado or making things for a client with a lake house up in Wakabuck, but that guy's my dad's best friend. I kind of sucked at design, even though I did make it through school. Most of what I do isn't very original, I guess. It's stuff that I kind of copied from Jay Peterman or stuff I learned how to do online. You know, I'd probably be happier if I took my friend's advice and started doing book reviews. Um, so yeah, there's that. Uh, one more question? Sure. It's kind of a weird one, but now that you have money, how often do you eat green beans? <laughs> I can't stand them anymore. I, uh, I made myself sick on them when I was on my own, and I can't even look at them today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. Well, I uh, usually wrap up episodes asking guests what's in store for the future. Um, Want to take a crack at that one before we cut this short? <laughs> yeah, sure, because that's a, that's a really good question, and I wish I had a good answer. Um, you've given me a lot to think about today. I guess I really don't know what the future holds for me, and I suppose never having to worry about my future, I've never really given it much thought. And maybe I should start. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Creative Ascent podcast with me, Brooke Ainsley. You can learn more about LJ Burke at nolumberjacks.com. I hear he has time in his busy schedule for commissions. <laughs> yeah, I do. Next week, I'm talking with cellist Madeline Clark about giving up a career with a Chicago Symphony Orchestra following the death of her husband and how she found her true calling by making music of her own. Until then, climb hard and stay creative. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and April Moon, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music. And because I was sick, you only have to wait a couple weeks for the annual Christmas episode. This year, enjoy three stories. Two that are kind of somber, and one that's... Well, it's rather ridiculous. You might even hear a recurring character. Until next time, be mighty...
and keep your axes sharp.